So what does Jesus have to say about himself? That's the question we've been asking over these recent weeks. There are so many theories and so many opinions out there about this person named Jesus, what he was about, what his intentions were, what it all meant. But it seems to me that the best way to answer the question is to look at Jesus' own words about himself. And that's what we've been doing over these recent weeks as we've been looking at the I am statements. Drawing on those powerful words that God speaks to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus when he says his name is I am. He is the God who defines his own purpose, his own identity. Multiple times in John's gospel, Jesus then draws upon that very idea when he says of himself, I am. Today we come to the seventh and final of those statements. We find it in the 15th chapter of John's gospel. I would encourage you to turn there as we read along once again, as is the case in so much of these latter chapters in John's gospel, these words come on the final night of Jesus' life, he's gathered with his disciples and he's praying for them and he's sharing with them his final thoughts before he goes off to be arrested. And here's what he says beginning in John 15 verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. 
This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much done with winter. We've had a little bit of frost, a few cold nights, even had a little bit of snow this past Tuesday morning. So by my way of reckoning things, that means it's time to bring on the spring. Even wore a green tie in honor of St. Patrick's Day this morning. I understand, of course, that's wishful thinking because we have many more months of cold weather yet to go. But I do take comfort in knowing that spring eventually will return. Even as we move into the apparent dead of winter, and there's plenty of evidence to that, I spent my entire Saturday raking leaves as evidence of it. Even as we move into the dead of winter, the natural world around us is already beginning to cycle through that process that is necessary to bring life back to the surface once the weather warms up again. That's because there is this powerful, what we'll call a life force that is pulsating through the created order. The creator God has created this universe in such a way that there is a rhythm of life that will not be denied, come what may, no matter what the temperatures do. When March or April gets here, you'll see the world around us bursting forth back into life. Well, in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus identifies himself with that life force. In fact, he goes so far as to say he is that life force. He is the one who brings about that life that we see all around us. Scripture's been telling us this pretty much from the beginning. For just a moment, use your imagination with me and let's connect a couple of dots. One from the Old Testament and then this one from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we go back to Genesis 1. seems like every week we find our way somehow back to Genesis 1 because it's such a foundational text. Genesis 1 tells us that God spoke the world into being. That he spoke into the nothingness and called forth everything that is. If you read the text, it says, and God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. God's word is the powerful force that brings everything everything into existence. That's the Old Testament. Now the New Testament, come with me again to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. John very intentionally identifies Jesus as the word which Jesus, or that which God spoke. Jesus is the creative agent through which God brought everything into being. John 1, 1 says it this way, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
John is very purposeful and intentional in the connection that he's drawing for us there. He wants us to see that Jesus is the creative agent through which and by which and for which God spoke all things into being. Jesus is the source of life that we see all around us and even within us. But if all of that seems a little bit heady and abstract and too theological for us, when we get to John chapter 15 and the verses that we've read this morning, Jesus makes it very concrete and very practical and very organic when he says simply, I am the vine. Now, even if you don't know theology from a hole in the ground and have never gardened in your life, that's an image we can all get. We just intuitively understand what he's saying there. We know that a vine is that central structure through which nourishment flows out into the branches. The vine is the source of life for the fruit. He is the life force. I am the vine, he says. I'm going to speculate here for just a moment, but I think we're on pretty good grounds when we do this. I'm imagining that when Jesus speaks those words, what he has most clearly in mind is a grapevine. Because that was the most common vine in the world and in the experience of the disciples and in the audience to which John was writing when he penned his gospel. And if that's the case, then I want you to consider this. In John's gospel... Do you recall the very first miracle that Jesus performs? In John chapter 2, we read that he turned water into wine. Now, wine is the end product of the fruit of the vine, which Jesus says he himself nourishes. Now, in that story, wine is a symbol of newness and joy. In that miracle, Jesus showed forth his ability to bring about newness of life and joy in an environment where there shouldn't have been any. He was, if you'll pardon the pun, the life of the party that night. Now that's how Jesus' ministry begins in John 2. Today in John 15, we're coming near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry because as we've already said, in just a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on trial, and by the next afternoon, he will be hanging dead from a cross. And in this final gathering with his disciples, he says the final I am statement, saying, I am the vine. Again, do you see the connection? He who earlier in his ministry provided the wine of gladness now specifically identifies himself with the one who is the source of that gladness and that newness. We can think of those two stories then as sort of bookends to the Gospel of John, serving to call attention to who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Jesus is the source of life. And the basic meaning of Jesus' words here is very clear and simple. If we will stay connected to Him, then that life will also flow through us, and as He goes on to say, we will bear fruit. He is the vine. We are the fruit. If we stay connected, that life will also be in us. But notice the word if in that last statement. If we stay connected to him, if we abide in him, then we will bear fruit. It's a conditional statement. 
In other words, it's not automatic. It's not a guarantee. It isn't a certainty that we will bear fruit. The promise is that we will bear fruit if we stay connected to Him. And that's where the analogy of the natural world begins to break down. Because you see, the great promise of spring is that it will happen no matter what. The way God has designed creation, it is a given that once we move through the winter months, we will see spring. It is an automatic. You can mark it on your calendar and then sit back and wait for it to happen. But we cannot say the same thing about our spiritual lives. Spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, bearing spiritual fruit in the world is not an automatic. It is not a given. We cannot assume that we will live fruitful lives simply because time passes by. It will happen only if something else happens first. We must stay connected to the vine if you remain in me you will bear fruit. Years ago in another church in another state, I had a good friend who had retired after many years working as a human resource professional in a large national firm. And one day in a conversation, he recalled for me a discussion he had with an individual who during a job interview boasted to him of having 25 years of experience in a particular field. My friend was very wise, and he asked him quite pointedly, do you really have 25 years of experience, or do you have one year of experience 25 times? Because there is a difference. Just because you've been around long enough to go through the motions year after year after year, that does not necessarily mean you have grown. It does not automatically mean you have improved or that there has been progress. Bearing fruit doesn't just happen. It happens only if something else also happens. We're now in the latter half of the college football season. It's interesting at this point in the calendar to see not only which teams are doing well, those teams which have winning records, many of which were expected to do so, but also to see which teams have gotten better as the season has gone on. These are the teams which have been willing to learn from each week's experience on the playing field. These are the teams that go back after each game and study the film and adjust their strategy and fill out, figure out how to fill the weaknesses and capitalize on the strengths while continuing to pound the weights and work on the fundamentals of the game. And as a result, they get better. Now you will notice that not every team does because not every team is willing to do that. But those who do see the results. If you do this, then growth will happen. Doesn't just happen because the earth has gone around the sun one more time. It happens only because we are intentional about doing the things that nurture growth in whatever area it is we need to grow in. 
Now, these last couple of examples have to do with personal growth and professional growth and, and emotional growth. But in John 15, Jesus is talking about a different kind of growth. He's talking about spiritual growth. The kind that takes us toward becoming more like Him. Listen to this verse from Matthew 10, another gospel, verse 24. Jesus says this to His disciples. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above the master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. Those words make it clear that if we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, then our goal is to become like Jesus. You know, the word Christian, it literally means little Christ. Christians are supposed to be little Christ running around in the world, doing what he did, being like he was. Trouble is, that doesn't happen automatically. That's not our natural inclination. We enter into the world with sinful tendencies and selfish motives. And so if we're going to become like him, we've got to grow out of who we are and how we are towards who he is and how he is. But that cannot happen unless we are truly connected to him. Just as a branch can't live unless it's connected to the vine, so we can only truly live if we are connected to Jesus. We will bear spiritual fruit if we remain in him. Remain in me. That's how Jesus puts it. Remain in me. Some translations, depending on which English version you have, use the word there, abide. Abide in me. Now, that's an interesting word. Not a word that filters its way into our everyday conversation much anymore. Remain, abide, it comes from the Greek verb meno, which has the sense of dwelling in something or lodging in something or, or living in something. If you dwell in a place, then you take up residence there and you make it the place where your life emanates from. My guess is that you view the structure you sleep in as more than just a roof over your head. You view it as your home because that's the place where your life happens. That's the place where the vital relationships are nurtured. That's the place where the foundational experiences of your life are shared. You abide there. It implies permanence and vulnerability in a certain degree of intimacy. You're not just passing through that place. You are abiding in it. It implies a vital connection that is born out over time. Now, like I said, that's a word we don't use much in everyday speech, and I think it's because, to be quite honest with you, there isn't much about modern culture that encourages us to abide anywhere, at least not in the things that are healthy and life-giving. Abiding requires a willingness to stick around a while. It implies a desire to go deeper in our connections. To abide means to deal with the things that really matter, 
to get past the surface level and past the mundane down to the profound things that really make us who we are. And contemporary society encourages us mostly to stay on the surface. We can talk with just about anybody about the weather, but ask us to go deeper than that and we clam up. To me, it's interesting that we use the word friend to describe our social media connections. Yet, if we're honest, there's not much about those online interactions that resemble true friendship. Not much abiding that goes on there. That's why I've said before that one of the great ironies about modern life is that technology now enables us to connect to more people in more places more quickly than at any point in history. And yet there's a growing sense of isolation and loneliness among us because we have forgotten how to abide, how to be connected in real and meaningful ways. And yet Jesus says if we want to bear fruit, that's exactly what we've got to do. If we want to become like him, we can't just pass through and be casual about it. We have to rest in our connection to him. We have to dig deep. We've got to go deep into the source of the one who is our life. Remain in me. Abide in me. If you stay connected to me, then you will bear fruit. That is the promise that ought to shape our lives. Of course, that raises the million-dollar question of how we do it. How do we abide in him? And it would have been nice at this point if Jesus would have given us a clear and easy three-step process for abiding, but he doesn't do it because abiding is never that simple. Any authentic relationship has to be worked out over time through all of the complexities and conundrums of life. And yet that doesn't mean Jesus leaves us clueless and helpless In part, we abide in Christ the same way we abide in any important relationship, and that is by spending time with Him. And for starters, that implies all of the standard practices that you would expect to hear a preacher in a pulpit talk about on a Sunday morning. We abide in Christ by engaging in all of the personal spiritual disciplines that God's people have used down throughout the ages. We abide in Christ, for example, by spending time in His Word. The book of Psalms repeatedly calls us not simply to read His Word, but to meditate on it. That is, to take it into us, to absorb it into our being. Not just to read it casually for information, but to actually immerse ourselves in it so that it can change who we are. We abide in Christ by spending time in His Word. We abide in Christ by spending time in prayer and seeking to have authentic conversation with God. I once heard prayer defined this way. Prayer is honest conversation with God about things that matter. And if you take that, you can apply it to almost any area of life. And almost any arena of life can become an opportunity for prayer when we open ourselves up to intentional communication with God. We abide in Christ through the discipline of financial stewardship 
because that's where we learn to be generous and to let go of things and to quit being selfish in our use of our resources. We abide in Christ through acts of service because that's where we turn our focus out beyond us into the world around us and begin to see the world through the eyes of Jesus who, according to Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but lowered himself all the way down to the level of a servant so that we too can serve others. We abide in Christ through a whole range of personal disciplines that open up space for Christ to work in us. But this morning, in the few moments that we have left, I want to focus on a different layer of abiding that comes through strongly in this passage. And if we don't tend to it, we'll miss the larger point. All of these practices that we have just named, scripture reading, prayer, stewardship, service, the whole range of them, they all have to do largely with our personal lives. These are things that we are called to do on our own, and it is important that we do them because nobody else can do them for us. As I've shared with our new members class just recently, when it comes to our physical health, nobody else can be healthy on our behalf. We have to adopt the disciplines necessary to promote our own health. Same is true here. We must be willing to apply ourselves to these personal disciplines. And yet here's the critical thing to understand. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation, and it is not a private experience. When Jesus calls us to stay connected to the vine, he is not thinking of us primarily as a collection of individual branches all bearing fruit independent of each other. To the contrary, what he is offering to us is the vine through which all the branches are connected to each other. By way of background, this isn't the first time that the vine imagery is used in the Bible. In multiple places in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, get this, the nation of Israel, that collective group of people was referred to as a vine. For example, the prophet Jeremiah tells us, God speaks to him saying, I had planted you, you being Israel, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. Israel's purpose was to bear God's fruit into a broken world, but unfortunately she failed to do so. And so as that same verse continues in Jeremiah, God says, How then did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? You see, God created Israel to represent him, to reflect him, to bear his fruit into the world, but she could not do it. So when Jesus calls himself the true vine, he tells us that he himself is coming to fulfill the purpose for which God first called Israel into existence. Jesus is now the true Israel. He is now the full and faithful representation of God into the world. In his person and in his life, Jesus completes and fulfills what Israel had not done. And that means to be in Jesus, to be connected to the vine, is now to be counted among the people whom Jesus represents. To be in Jesus. 
Jesus is to be part of the true Israel. The New Testament book of of Romans tells us that salvation in Christ means being grafted into him as branches into the true vine of the true Israel. And so on this night when Jesus is about to be arrested, he tells us to remain in him, to abide in him, because he is also telling us to abide and remain in each other. He is the vine, and together, together we are the branches. Bearing fruit is not something we can do alone. As I've heard it put so poignantly before, what Jesus is asking of us is too great for any of us to accomplish by our own power. We need each other. I don't care how intensely we read our Bibles or how often we pray. If we try to abide in Jesus, in isolation from Jesus' people, we will not succeed. It's always interesting when I find myself in conversation with strangers in public. And eventually the conversation turns to that direction. It always does in any conversation. So what do you do for a living? And when I tell them, sometimes the conversation just shuts down immediately because people aren't always sure what to do with a preacher in their midst. I remember one conversation in which somebody learned of my identity and began immediately defending themselves. Well, I used to go to church, but I finally figured out I don't need no church to read my Bible and pray. To which I said, okay, do you? The conversation came to an end at that point. (laughs) Following Jesus by definition means doing so in fellowship with other believers with whom we share our gifts and from whom we both receive encouragement and accountability. Without that, we will live fruitless lives. Church The collection, the gathering, the congregation of God's people is not a luxury that we tack onto our spiritual lives once we've got everything else worked out. It is the fertile soil in which our lives and through which our lives bear the fruit of the Spirit. Many years ago now, before I was married, before I had answered a call to ministry, I, I went through what I can only describe as a crisis of faith. There are a lot of things that fed into that experience, and, and I don't have time or even sometimes even the insight to list them all out for you. But, but I will just say that I found myself living for a period of time with an intense spirit of doubt and I can tell you it was a terrifying season of life for me. I doubted for a while whether the things I had believed for most of my life up to that point were really true and I can tell you that that doubt led to lots of searching and a lot of seeking 
And I read just about anything I could get my hands on in those days to help me resolve the struggles I was experiencing. But I can tell you even more importantly than that. That experience drove me more fully into the arms of the church. I was in grad school in those days and I had managed to get plugged into a local church, a church not all that different from any other church, just the church down the street on the corner. The more my doubts increased and the more my fear got hold of me, the more involved I got. And I didn't just show up for things so that I could check it off my list. I immersed myself into the life of that church. And I sought to share my struggles there with anybody who would listen. And thankfully, there were plenty of people who did. And when I look back on that time in my life, it is as clear as day to me. That my church family was the difference maker in bringing me through that period. I read lots of useful things. God put a lot of useful resources in my path. But it was the fellowship of the local church that kept me grounded in the faith. And the love and the support and the encouragement I got there kept pointing me down the path of truth so that even if I couldn't see the answers, I could at least see the next step I should take and moving towards it. And it was that experience that ultimately, in the long run, helped to solidify my sense of calling to ministry. Now, in the end, it will be up to God and to others to judge whether my life has borne any real spiritual fruit. But I shudder to think what the state of my soul would be today were it not for the influence and the engagement of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm here to tell you today that my experience of church has not been perfect and yours hasn't been either. Over the years, the church has wounded me and I have wounded the church. It has not been without pain and disappointment, and neither has yours, because life on the vine is a tangled mess. But there is no life anywhere else. And if we cut ourselves off from the vine in the effort to avoid the tangle, we will eventually wither and die. Jesus said he is the vine. He is the source of life. And apart from him, we will wither and die. But if, if we will remain in him, if we will abide in him, if we will rest in him and in his people, we will bear fruit. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today with humble gratitude for the church which nurtures us, but even more so for the risen Lord who nurtures the church. Enable us today and every day 
to abide in you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The gospel is not simply a set of ideas to ponder or to believe intellectually. It is a relationship to be lived. And if you've never entered into that relationship by acknowledging Jesus as Lord, that's where it has to start. He is the vine. Unless we are connected to him, we will die. So if that's what needs to happen in your life, my prayer is that in the, in the coming moments as we stand and sing, you'll feel the Spirit calling you into that connection. I would just invite you to come forward if that's where you are, and we'll pray together as you begin that journey. Maybe what you're needing is a connection to the church. You've, you've acknowledged Jesus, but you haven't taken the step of immersing yourself in the fellowship of his believers. If that's where you are, we would invite you forward as well. We would love to receive you. If there's any other response you need to make public, I'll be here. But the call to all of us, no matter where we are, is to abide in him. Let's do so as we stand to worship him.